Welcome back to another episode of Trading Secrets. I'm your host, Jason Tardik, and welcome to the pre-market trading segment where I tell you a little bit about what you can expect from our guests today, an update from the market, and some news from my personal life. First and foremost, the moment I know most of the money mafia has been waiting for, we have Chris Harrison on the podcast. This is a guest we have wanted for quite some time, a close friend, and if you think one episode would do Chris Harrison's career justice, you thought wrong. This is a two-part series. So what you're going to be listening to today is part one, and then of course the recap, and then we'll pick up back with part two. If you're new to Trading Secrets, one thing I would suggest, whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, just hit the subscribe button so when part two comes out next Monday, you will get an update and notification because this whole episode, which was recorded in about 90 minutes, is an episode in stories from Chris's life that you haven't heard before. He even prefaced most of the stories with, I haven't told this story before. So you're going to want to make sure that you listen to this. Now, what can you expect from this episode? Well, first of all, Chris's career has been an absolute mosaic. And I'm going to take his quote and not mine. It took a long time to become an overnight sensation. I worked damn hard to get that lucky. And you'll see evidence of that because we're going to talk through each step of his career and of course, of course, the dollars and cents behind it. We talk about him working in Oklahoma, covering news like the Oklahoma City bombing. He was a journalist and then he landed his dream job in Dallas with the Dallas Cowboys, but didn't take it to go to the horse racing network. And without taking the job of going to the horse racing network, there's no way he ends up on The Bachelor and he tells you that. There's several stops in between. You're gonna hear how Chris Harrison went from making $500 from his first job to then landing the big gig, baby, at $22,500. And then you're gonna hear all the stops in between, leading him to six figures, and even all the jobs he still had to work once he took on the role of being the host of The Bachelor. If you think we're talking dollars and cents when it comes to Bachelor, you thought right. You're going to find out how much he made per his first episode, how he negotiated, and much, much more. I'm telling you, this is a really good episode. The beauty, too, is you're going to hear career lessons. You're going to hear money lessons. You're going to hear someone with a lot of experience in a wild, excuse my language, a wild fucking industry that you can take home to your day-to-day living. Towards the end, you're also going to hear him talk and start to foreshadow about what his interview process was like at The Bachelor, who else he was in contention with, who else got the opportunity before him in his relationship with the creator from day one. There's just a whole lot of action in this episode. And I'm excited for you to see this side of Chris. He even talks about when he was brought to tears, tears, when he was given that first offer in 1993 for $22,500. Now, a little update from the market. I'm actually going to give you a news article because it connects to the market and it also connects to this episode. Have you guys ever heard of the app called Cameo? Well, Cameo went to the moon and came back down a little bit. Now, the article out there that was actually sent to me by Lauren Zima, Cameo to the Moon and Back. And it's an article all about how Cameo took off, had over 400 employees with a valuation of $1 billion, now down to 33 employees. Now, Jason, how do you connect this to the world that we live in? Well, If you're not familiar, tech companies, and especially startup tech companies, which Cameo would be considered, took a beating when interest rates went up. When the cost of capital went up, tech startups took a beating because the alternative for money could be made at a higher return with less risk than investing into small tech companies. Small tech startups need capital to grow. And when the cost of capital went up, That was one of the moving parts as to why these companies got smoked. And of course, there's industry specific, like Cameo blew up, blew up during the pandemic. So this is an interesting section in here, though, that relates to Chris. I'll ask you this before I even read it. 
How much do you think Chris Harrison has made on Cameo? Well, let's read this little blurb from the article. I'm picking up at Brett Favre, Sonia Morgan of the Real Housewives of New York City, Kevin O'Leary of Shark Tank, and Chris Harrison of The Bachelor. Each of the five showed lifetime sales of more than $1 million. That is incredible. And my cameo lifetime sales just pass over 100000 So there's Chris Harrison at much more than 10x. It is a beautiful thing. I'm also going to give you another little dabble of numbers because with Chris's story, I could have talked to him for seven hours, literally seven hours. I wanted to know so much. I got 90 minutes. That was the most I could get. And not only that, I got 90 minutes after bawling my fucking eyes out right before his show. So if you think that I was a little off this episode, it was probably because for 90 minutes straight, I was bawling my eyes before this. But when I listen to this episode, I feel really good about it. But we could have gone deeper. So I'll give you even more information. We know he made well over a million dollars on Cameo. And also with Miss America, we didn't get into this, but he made around the 75K to 100K range for his work there. But we're going to talk about all the stops in between. It's a little bit about part one. It's a little bit of an update from the market that also connects to Chris's earnings and a little update from my personal life. I'm in New York City. This week, I got LASIK eye surgery. So more to come on that. I'll give you an update, but probably the most important thing. I'm very close to locking in a place in New York City. It's always been a dream for me to live here. Always. Life got in the way. Work got in the way. Relationships got in the way. Now, there's only one priority in my life at this moment, at this juncture. And of course, it's my health and mental health, all that stuff, but it's me. And so I think I'm going to check the box to living out that dream of being in New York City. Now, business-wise, how am I going to do it? Well, I'm going to have a place in Nashville. Caitlin and I split the dogs. Right now, the situation is half the month she gets them, half the month I get them. So half the month, I would live in Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, I still have time with my dogs, which is super important. I also will have no state income tax because I'll be in Nashville resident. I will also buy real estate in Nashville, which historically has been appreciating at a very high level and can also be transformed into investment property, short-term or long-term rental should I need to. Then what I'll be doing in New York City is renting for 18 months. Through the agency, we looked at office space. And office space was more than the cost of a nice apartment. So we're going to take the apartment that I'm likely going to sign this lease for, make it an office and living space for the agency. And additional, with this space, this place has so many amenities, they have a podcast studio there. We pay $250 per time we go to the podcast studio for audio and video. We can now podcast from our apartment building. And as a result of that, if I do 10 episodes, that's $2,500. I usually do 10 episodes a month. So we're justifying costs. We're checking boxes. More to come. Please remember to subscribe, follow, give us five stars, and let us know what you think about this episode. Enough of me. Enough of this pre-market trading segment. Let's ring in the bell with the one, the only, the legend, Chris Harrison. Welcome back to another episode of Trading Secrets. Today, we are joined by my good friend, Bachelor Nation Hall of Famer, former host of ABC's The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, and all of the franchise spinoffs over a 20-year span, the one and only Chris Harrison. Chris spent 20 years becoming the face of one of reality TV's top franchises and establishing himself is one of the top hosts in all of television. His hosting resume is extensive outside the Bachelor franchise as he hosted Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and the Miss America pageant, and of course, carpet coverage at the Emmys, just to name a few. He is also the author of The Perfect Letter. In recent years, after a highly publicized departure from his host title of The Bachelor shows, Chris has looked to embark on other career endeavors in and out of the media space, which we're going to get into. And he is now hosting one of iHeart's top podcasts, the most dramatic podcast ever. I can tell you from experience, just coming off the hot seat seconds ago, it is the most dramatic podcast ever. But today we are going to chat with Chris on his career, Bachelor Nation, where he sees the franchise going and what are some of his career goals now and moving forward. And of course, we're going to dabble in some finance and money talk. Chris, thank you so much for being on Trading Secrets. Jay, thanks for having me, man. This it is, is good. good to be here. Welcome to my hot seat. And let me tell you, payback is going to be friendly. No. Uh, <laughs> hey, let's keep this above the belt. Let's keep it friendly. We're just a couple guys having a beer. 
here in Austin, Texas. Cheers. It's good to have you in my home. It is good to be in your home. Thank you for having me. And if you guys haven't listened, go tune into the Most Dramatic Podcast. I was just on Chris's podcast and we get deep. I get emotional. Man, I really appreciate it. It was was a great talk. And I know we'll do the same here. And it is the good and the bad, I guess, of podcasts and these Mm -hmm. long form interviews, especially when you're doing it face to face with someone who you really love and admire you're going to go deeper. You know, the gloves come off, the walls come down, whatever, (laughs) whatever analogy you want to say. And it's good because you get the honesty and that's what these things are all about. It's why I've, I don't know if I'll ever go back to doing regular interviews where they're going to frank and bite you into 10 second sound bites when I can come on and talk to you or do my own show. And I can say what I really want Yeah, and, and I think, I'm not going to be edited. Exactly. And the authenticity and I think the vulnerability that comes with it when you do already have an existing relationship and there's already so much context and history, it makes for such a deeper conversation. For sure. And this is a business podcast. So it's one of the reasons why the whole podcast industry is blowing up. You have a podcast. We'll get into that. But Chris, what we're going to do, we're going to rewind to the start of your career. Everyone knows you, of course, from the Bachelor franchise, but you were a sports reporter at a CBS affiliate. You were also with a horse racing channel. You were the host of designer challenges. You've done a lot of things in TV before the Bachelor came knocking on your door. So I want to go back into those days. When you got into those roles, let's just talk about your first hosting career right out of school. What does the audition process look like? What does the pay look like? Tell me about what that career is like from an entry point perspective. Yeah, I always say, you know, I took a long time to become an overnight sensation. You know, <laughs> it's true. It's, you know, people always see the, the top 10%, whether it's in sports and you see Tiger Woods or Serena Williams and you say they were made to play tennis or made to play golf or, you know, Chris, you got so lucky getting The Bachelor. And I'm like, yeah, I worked damn hard to be that lucky. You know, I was, I was at this for a long time before I popped up on ABC. and. It started back in 93. I was a soccer player like you. I played in college and I got into sports casting in school and I was doing local play-by-play on the Cox Cable Network for our basketball team at Oklahoma City University. And we happened to be amazing. We won the national title like two years in a row and I was calling games. I was doing play-by-play and it was the first thing that made me think twice about soccer. Like I, I was not a great student in high school. I didn't love school. I got to college and I just wanted to meet girls and play soccer. That was my, I mean, that was my life, <laughs> you know, like, like most 18 year old boys. <laughs> yeah. And I had the ability to kick a soccer ball and run pretty fast. And so I was a good soccer player and I got a scholarship and that was such a blessing because it opened up the next door, which was, I got into mass communications and broadcasting. And this, this gentleman, Chris Weish came to me at school. We're still friends. We still talk. And he said, Hey, I'm about to start a program. I need someone, I need a student to start this program doing play-by-play for the basketball team. Hmm. I'm like, dude, I have no idea how to do that. I've never, I've never been on TV. And he's like, if, if I teach you, will you do it? And so I dove into it. And, and really, I don't do drugs, but it was like, <laughs> I guess, heroin. I don't know. But it was the first thing. I'm just like, I'm addicted to this. Interesting. Like, A, I was good at it. I could yeah. tell. And I had a knack for it. And it felt right. And it just, it, everything clicked. And it was the first time. I don't really care about soccer anymore. I don't care if I turn pro, which by the way, I wasn't good enough to go pro anyway, but in my head, I'm like, I don't know. I didn't have another out, but now I'm like, I have this love of my life that I am diving headfirst into. Got an internship at the local affiliate. You mentioned CBS. It was KWTV. uh, And this, this amazing mentor of mine, Bill Teagans, who his book is sitting right over there. uh, The late, great Bill Teagans who passed away. But he took me under his wing and I I could not get enough of being around him, being around the station. In sports, you call it a gym rat. I was a station rat. I couldn't be around the station enough. And I was all in on this. And I luckily got my first job right out of college at KWTV in Oklahoma City. And I know you're thinking, oh, that's not a big deal. It is. It's a top 50 market. It was a small job. It was a morning show on the weekends. I'm talking 6 to 8 a.m. Okay. Saturday mornings. For it started to be Saturday and Sundays, but it started off just Saturdays. Okay. I honestly I think I was making $500 a weekend doing it. And this was your first job out of school My then. My first job. Okay. And I was not qualified. And I know you're like well, that's a small job, but I was not qualified to get that job in a top 50 market. That was a pretty good job. A lot of people had auditioned for it. I had this one moment in Dallas, Texas, covering the Cowboys when Jerry Jones fired Jimmy Johnson and hired Barry Switzer. We were down there covering it. And I was really just a glorified intern. I was down there just helping. 
and the truck went down. We couldn't run any of the tapes that the sportscaster had put together. And he said, Chris, put on your jacket. I was ready in a suit and tie, ready to go. Not thinking I'd be on the air. It's just how I dressed. Sure. And he said, you're coming on the air. So A, I was ready. Whether I knew it or not that day, I, I wore the suit and tie for a reason. I, I believe in being overdressed for every situation. And he pulled me on and I said, what am I doing? He says, just talk. I'm going to ask questions. You have forgotten more about the Dallas Cowboys than any of us ever know. Just tell me what you saw today. Tell me what you heard. How is this historically significant? Okay. And I jumped into a live shot and crushed it. And I went home and my boss was like, you're going to get this job that you're not qualified for. We're going to take a leap of faith and we're giving you this job. And I did it. And I was coaching two soccer teams. Okay. I coached a high school girls team and a boys club team making a lot more money than I was making in TV. I would go in on Friday nights and they would pay me like $50 to work the Friday night high school football show. And so back then you had to call, right? We didn't have the internet. We didn't have texting and all that. So we had a Rolodex and we would call and get all the scores from all the games around Oklahoma. And that's what I would do. And I would help edit tapes and put the show together. And then everybody would leave around 11, 1130 after the late news. And my night began. I had four sportscasts to put together for Saturday morning by 6 a.m. So I stayed up at the station all night, wrote, edited, produced all my own shows, finally would go to sleep for about an hour on the floor of my office, get up, do my own hair and makeup, get dressed, do four sportscasts. 500 bucks a weekend. You're coaching. You have the internship. You're doing this and grinding this on a weekend. And by the way, what's wild is you're describing this and it seems like entry level, but this was a huge stretch job for you. Yeah. Top 50 market, yeah. which, which is big. Usually, you know, you leave and you go to Beaumont, Texas or Wichita Falls. Williamsville, you know. Buffalo, New York. Yeah, exactly. You know, you go to <laughs> these markets that are like market yeah. 75 through 175. And by the way, if you don't know, market size is like New York and LA are like one and, one and two, two and yeah. Dallas is big. And, you know, as you would think, the bigger the city, the bigger the market. How long were you in that role for? Not long maybe only like six to seven months. And then the number three guy left and went to New Orleans. And again, I was not ready for this job. And my boss was, it was really depressing because I wanted that job so damn bad. I loved him. I loved this station. And I just knew I wasn't going to get this job. I was sending out resume tapes. And you know, you talk about the audition process, you would put together resume tapes and you know, your best stories, your best sports gas and all that stuff. And you'd send it to Poughkeepsie and you know, Tucumcari, New Mexico. And you're asking for a job. And so I, that's, that was my lot. I was going to leave and I wasn't going to get this job. And my boss was looking at all these tapes. And again, he's just like, you know, I just went through a thousand tapes and it was depressing because these tapes would be stacked up on my desk. Hmm. And he was looking at them, yeah. looking so at you're people, seeing all the people yeah, you're competing. It's against. like, it'd be like, you know, the girl you're in love with looking at pictures of guys <laughs> that aren't going to be you. And so my Sounds boss, like an episode of the bachelor. Yeah, it was an episode of the bachelor. <laughs> But, you know, my boss went through like tape 5,000 and he finally was just like, no one's better than you, dude. Wow. He's like, you're not ready for this. But, and he called me and I'll never forget. This is the funniest business moment of my life. I've never told this story. He calls me in. I think it might've been on my day off and I go in and he calls me in the sports office and he's like, I'm giving you the job. Wow. And goosebumps. I got tears in my eyes. I, my life in this instant just changed. So he goes, we got to go talk to the news director, Joyce Reed. So we're walking to Joyce's office and we're kind of backstage from the sports office. You had to walk around the set. Then you got to the newsroom. So I stopped him backstage and I said, Bill, Bill, in my excitement, I'm like, Hey, shit, I didn't think about this. What do I ask for? Sure. Like, how do I get paid? He goes, what was your title by the way? This, this new job at this point. Yeah. I wasn't even on the team. I was the Saturday morning sports guy. Okay. I wasn't even doing stories for the main newscast. Okay. I wasn't even a part of the five, six, and 10 o'clock team. Okay. Okay. There's the, there's the five, six, and 10 guy, like the guy, yeah. right? That's your sports director. We all know. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the number two guy who usually does weekends. Okay. Sometimes Friday nights, usually weekend show. Then there's usually a number three guy that's just a reporter. He can fill in an anchor, but usually he's out on the beat doing the local stories and that kind of thing. Yeah. This was for that job. Okay. It was for the number three job. And so I stopped him. I'm like, Bill, what do I ask for? And he goes, dude, you know how lucky you are to have this job. You walk in that office, you say, thank you. And you get out of there as fast as possible without saying 
anything. When they say the number, if it's completely egregious, I'll speak up. Okay. You don't say a word. Just say thank you and get the F out of the office. Well, the natural question. What was the number? 225. $22,500. My first what job year? ever. This would have been 1993, 94, probably 94 by then. Yeah. I graduated in 93. So by now, probably calendar year had switched. So probably 94. Yeah. I still have the contract right over there in, my, in my desk. We'll talk a little bit more about your career stops along the way. But let me ask you this. Things we learn at an early age tend to stick with us a little bit. Do you think any of that has been instilled in you in the fact that you got that offer, take it, don't negotiate? And do you think that's something that stuck with you because the first ever opportunity to negotiate, that's what you were told in this industry? No, you know, not in a bad way. It was something that I talked to kids about all the time. I've, I'm, my son is a, is a senior. Josh is a senior at TCU. And I'm trying to impart on him some of the wisdom I didn't have going into this world of business. And I see this on the internet a lot of people like, I don't like working. I can't make enough to live. I, I feel for this generation graduating. I know life is hard right now and, and I'm not saying it's not, but I also see people that are worried about the wrong things entering the business world. You're worried about a title. You're worried about money. I have always felt, and I'm not saying this is the golden rule. This is just me. Money will come. Yeah. I have in that lesson. We'll talk about later when we get to Miss America and some of these other things. That lesson has really paid off Got in spades it. for me. Trust yourself, trust your skills, trust your work ethic. The money and the title will come. And I've been lucky enough that I love what I do. I've always been passionate about what I do. And my mom always taught me if you, know, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And I believe that. And so I, I didn't care. I'm like, I'll wait tables at Olive Garden, which yeah. I did. I'll coach two high school soccer teams, which I did. I'll coach a club team, which I did. I'll come in and work Friday nights just for the opportunity to do what I love because I know once I do it, I'm going to crush it. Especially in your space where experience is your resume, your resume is your experience, and that's what's going to get you the next opportunity. Yeah. Inevitably, all of this ended up paramounting to landing you with ABC, The Bachelor. But before we get into that, what stops did you have along the way before ABC comes knocking on your door? Well, once I made it in Oklahoma City as the number three guy, I quickly moved up to the number two spot. Um, they were not, you know, they graciously gave me that job. So now I'm number two and I'm doing the weekends and I'm filling in for my boss. I'm doing a lot of the five, six and 10 o'clock shows. So I was really doing it well. And I saw a world in which do I stay here? in Oklahoma city sure. and have an amazing life and be the guy, the peep. Yeah. Be the guy. You're a big fish in a smaller pond covering Oklahoma football, Oklahoma state, Dallas Cowboys. But I had this dream, this dream to always move back home to Dallas, be a sportscaster in Dallas and be the voice of the Dallas Cowboys. Wow. I wanted to be, that was my dream job was be the play by play guy for the Dallas Cowboys and be a sportscaster. And in 99, I, I made that come true and I, I got a job offer to be a sportscaster in Dallas, Texas, a guy named Mike Ducey, who's still there. He offered me a job and it wasn't the job, but again, don't always worry about the job that'll come. It was just the gateway to get to Dallas. And then I was going to figure out a way to be the, the voice of the Cowboys. At the same time, I had this agent who called and said, Hey, there's a horse racing network that's starting up in LA. They really want to see you. And I went out and auditioned. And I knew very little about horse racing. You know, I, I was a sportscaster, so yeah. I covered the Derby. I covered the big three and then I covered the, you know, the Breeders' Cup, that kind of stuff. But I wasn't intimate with it. The Remington Park, there was a track in, in Oklahoma City. I kind of kept up with it a little bit, but they really were looking for sportscasters to work with professionals and they offered me way too much money, six figures, just over six figures. Let me ask you this though. You go from 500, you go to 22.5, you then go to Dallas. Again, one takeaway. I want no, to make I didn't go to Dallas. You didn't get, you ended up not taking that. I had the dream offer and I turned it down and went because to LA of this, because of TVG. Okay. Dream offer. What was the dream offer? How much? I don't, I don't even know if I negotiated the Dallas job. Um, it probably would have been my guess, 65, 75,000. I think I was making when I left Oklahoma city, I still wasn't making six figures. I was probably making 60, maybe I probably in the fifties. I was and probably how, making it in the fifties. And how old are you at this point? Oh gosh. I was, I was young when I graduated. I was only like 21 when I graduated college. So this is, well, by now what 99, 
I got to do some math here. What am I 20? Well, no, I came to LA when I was 28, 29 years old. Okay. So 28, 29, you pass on the dream job because of the horse racing opportunity out in LA. It's a six figure deal though. I just had this idea that like I could always go home. Yeah. Like this, this weird opportunity came up and I don't know, I'm not, I, I never had a dream of going to Hollywood or LA. But I went out there and audition, and they offered me, I think it was $125,000, maybe $135,000. And I'll be honest, I didn't grow up with money. My yeah. parents did not have a lot of money. It, it was more money than I ever thought I was going to see in my life. Yeah. I couldn't fathom making six figures. My dream, honestly, if you, if you said, hey, 25-year-old Chris or whatever, what would be your dream number to make money? I, I always had this idea, could I be a sportscaster and make $100,000? Yeah. If I do... I will be the luckiest, richest SOB in the world. And that was my dream. That was all I wanted to do. And then I I remember sitting in the back of my house in Oklahoma City and I had these two offers on the table and I just thought, let's do it. Like, you know, it's the the country song, you know, heads, Carolina, tails, California. It was like, I'm like, you know, heads, Dallas, tails, California. I'm like, let's go, let's just, I'll go surf for six months. I, I didn't think much would come of it. I thought, oh, you know, I'll be there for six months or a year. I can always come back home to Dallas and, and, and jump back into the dream, but just stretch your wings a little bit. Is it fair to say if you didn't take the horse racing opportunity in LA, that inevitably the bachelor probably would not have found you? Zero percent. Zero percent. Zero percent. So they only found you because you were in LA yes. with that opportunity. Because there were a number of other things that happened that led me to get on the list and remain on the, the, the bachelor list host lasted for over a year. Mm-hmm. I heard about this job for a long time. I forgot about this job and then ended up getting a call back that you were down to the final four. And there were, we can talk about, there were a couple of things I did again, lessons I've learned of things I was doing just out of the kindness of my heart that led to me getting the bachelor job. One thing I talk a lot about though, is based on your profession, based on your passion, based on your interest, there are certain cities that will revolve around whatever those industries, passions, and places are. If you don't put yourself in a position to get lucky or, or yeah. find that golden opportunity, it never will come, but you did. So you take the job, you're in LA, you're making a bucket a quarter in the, in the late 90s as a mid 20 year old. If you take into inflation, that's oh huge. God, You're rich and killing it. And I was married at the time and my then wife was doing pretty well. She was an uh, accounting major and yep. working in, I think that time she was working for a medical company and she was doing well. How old were you when you got married? Uh, I was 23. And did you get married in I Dallas? Got in, we got married in Dallas. Interesting. Yeah. She was, she was an Air Force brat, but went to school in San Antonio and we went to college together. We okay. were college sweethearts and we got engaged on like spring break of my senior year. Wow. I mean, we were kids. We How were things just, have changed. Yeah, right? we were just children. Society. Obviously, we grew up and we're, we're still friends and she's a great mom. But yeah. obviously, when you're, I was 18 years old when yeah. I met her. I was okay. or 19. I was 19. Interesting. You're a little bit of a different man. You grow when, into a different yeah, person exactly. from 19 as the years pass. All right. So then you're in LA. Tell me about what the process is from the horse racing network in LA to all of a sudden getting a call from a reality television opportunity. What does it look like? In business and in life, the world's worst clone is desperation. Mm. I didn't smell like desperation. God, I love that line. I, 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 you know, to that I line. was new. I was new to the business. I was new to the city. I was a fresh face. And I was making what I thought was bank. So I didn't care. I didn't give a shit. I was started to go on on what's called auditions. And I say that laughingly because I just didn't know, I didn't know what an audition was. Yeah. I never auditioned. You know, I went to job interviews like a normal human being. I never auditioned. I, you know, and my, I'll never forget when I, I got, you know, my agent would call and they would say, oh, do you want to, you know, do some acting stuff? And I was like, sure. That sounds fun. Movies are cool. Yeah. I've been to some movies. Yeah. And so I went for this movie called Bounce. Okay. With Ben Affleck and Gwyneth Paltrow. And the lady, the casting director calls me back. She says, you got a call back. I said, that's great. That's you ever great. acted a day in your life going into this? Never. Not a lick. Never. I was a sports, I was a host, <laughs> yeah. a sportscaster, whatever. I hang up the phone. I call my agent. Hey, what's a callback? Yeah. And they're like, what? I said, I just got a callback. <laughs> is that good? Is that, you know, is it? She's yeah. like, you're an idiot. Yeah. I said, no, I know. And I'm like, cards on the table, man. I don't know what this is. Sure. Like, Did she say a time? I said, yeah, two o'clock. She said, that means you need to be back today at two for a callback. I'm like, oh, and you know, you get what's called sides, right? They give you a piece of paper and it has okay. this, you know, what you're going to say. And it was for a CNN reporter, like a newscaster role. Okay. And so I go back in and the first time you're in, you know, in front of a video camera 
you know, little Betamax thing that we all had back in the day and they record you and it's just the casting director and you read your lines and then they give you a call back and I go back in and now the room's full. There's 10 people in there. I don't know, director, producers, I don't know who the hell it is. And I, they're like, all right, go. And I'm like, all right. And rip it. And I'm literally just having fun. I did not care, which was the genius behind it all. I wasn't desperate. I wasn't a starving actor or whatever. I was just like, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm just doing me, man. And so I, I, had been a newscaster. I really had done news. I did tornado chasing. I did the bombing in 1995 in Oklahoma City, things that really shaped my life. And I was a journalist at heart. And so I went into this and I started reading and I kind of changed some of the lines because huh. I was like, their writing was terrible. It wasn't good as a It was some Hollywood you know. writer trying to write like a newscaster. And I'm like, yeah. no, dude, we would never say this. Yeah. So I did a whole breaking news thing because Bounce, the movie was about this plane crash. Okay. And they were like, they said, stop, stop, stop. And I was like, oh, sorry. I, I changed some things. Yeah. They go, who did? I go, well, I, I kind of told them my story and they're like, you got the job. Wow. I'm like, really? That's cool. But. I learned a quick lesson. When you're in a Ben Affleck movie, <laughs> you're going to see a lot of Ben Affleck, not Chris Harris. <laughs> lesson so learned. I went in. I was, Humbling for I a 25-year-old Chris. So, Jay, I'm so pumped, man. I told everybody, right? I'm on top of the you know, Sears Tower, and I'm yelling, I'm in a movie with Ben Affleck and Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm so pumped. I'm calling my friends. I'm calling friends I don't even know. And I go to the movie. You know, They, they gave us premiere tickets. Yeah. Yeah. A big deal, dude. I walked the carpet. I'm crushing it. Yeah. And you know, I'm not doing the bachelor yet. No one knows who the hell I am. Ben Affleck, Gwyneth Paltrow are there watching the movie in my move, in my scene. I knew it was in because it's pivotal. It's kind of this come to Jesus moment at the end of the movie with Ben Affleck sitting on the bed and he's, I'm kind of reciting and recapsulating the whole thing. So, you know, he's listening to it and kind of just has this moment. Well, it's his moment. It's Ben Affleck. It's not mine. You can hear my voice and then you can see my face in a reflection in a picture behind Ben's head. So that's how I, it was so humbling. I'm like, Oh, welcome to Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood. That was my welcome to Hollywood moment. I made, I made scale. I made no money, but you know, I did. I went to the party with Ben and, and, Gwyneth and I was like, this you is- just said an industry jargon that people won't know. I made scale. So yeah, you're, you're, I wasn't even a member of the union yet, which is SAG-AFTRA, the Screen Actors Guild. Yep. But this movie got me into SAG because the jobs I'd done up to then weren't, weren't union jobs. And so there is a set amount of money that you will at least make, which is, they call it scale. And it was, I don't even know what it was, maybe $1,700. So if you have okay. a speaking part, yeah. there, you have to make this amount of money. They okay. can't go any lower than that Understood. as a union shop. So, so you're making the minimum that yeah. you can make. You do this audition, you land it, you'll have a very, very coming I would have Hollywood traded it all moment. for two tickets to the, to the premiere. Exactly. It oh, all right. it was in heaven. So unbelievable. But how does this experience with the acting and then the hosting connect to how The Bachelor finds So really what led to it, I, I kind of jumped ahead, but really what led to it, I started auditioning for some of that stuff. I realized I'm not an actor. I, I don't, that's not my love. I've yeah. done it. I was in another movie with Eddie Murphy and Robert De Niro. And that was, it was oddly, ironically about reality TV. Come on. It was about, it was Rene Russo and they were producers and they were following these two cops. And I had a really funny scene in there and it was like the worst acting job in my, of my life. But so I did some of that stuff. Just, just goofing around. Hey, we got to dig, yeah, we gotta dig these up. up. It's gold. You, you'll see me overact because De Niro had just shot a, a camera with a gun. He mm-hmm. like got mad and he shot this camera. Yeah. And so I was this, you know, scared reporter asking him questions and he turns around and I was supposed to be like, Hey, you're supposed to be scared. Like he could shoot you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like this overacting <laughs> moment where I, my eyes get big. It's like, <gasps> you know, it was like overacting one-on-one. Director's like, like cut. Yeah, less, less, dude, Chris, less. Like, you're at a 15, take it to a four, but overacting aside, my next big gig and the next big breakthrough was home and garden network. Designers Challenge. I mean, you're going from the Dallas Cowboys to horse racing now to Home and Garden. To Home and Garden. I mean, the world, you know, I'm a big fan of chase your dream, follow your passion relentlessly, but just pay attention to when other doors and windows open. Yeah. I'm a big believer of uh, soccer got me to this level because I went to college. But it wasn't going to get me any further. Yeah. But it it opened the door to sports casting. Interesting. That opened the door to moving to LA. That opened the door to the. So, I'm a big believer of wait till that door is cracked open or whatever. Don't be so stuck on your dream that you're not afraid to pivot and go somewhere else. Making that money. 
And Designers Challenge, that's with HGTV, which yeah. at this point is like a legit network. Like I We mean, were killing it. Yeah. We, and Designers Challenge became the number one show on HGTV. It was right as the design craze was taken off. What was the uh, this big design show on ABC where you remodel a house or whatever? The home makeover Home show? makeover, yeah, yeah, yeah design yeah. makeover. Move that bus! Yeah, so I was right as that was happening. So we'd been on for a couple of years, so everybody was clamoring to get a design show. I was already on the air. So all of a sudden, my show just blows up, and we are cranking out episodes. Are you making more than you were making at the horse racing gig? By now, yes. So now you're in your late 20s. I'm doing 20s. both, but I kept both jobs. Oh, so you're yes. doing the old double dip. Oh, yeah. Okay, what do you get paid to be a host for Designers Challenge for HGTV? Oh, God, it was per episode. And at first, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, oh, gosh, maybe five to 10 grand is what it got up to, okay. which was great for HGTV. And, but then we started cranking out about 65 episodes a year. Damn. Because we were just, we were double and triple ordering. We were killing it. And you were still managing the horse racing gig while doing this. I was working there four or five hours a day, traveling a little bit. The great thing about HGTV is I would go in and it was all green screen. Okay. So I would crank out seven or eight episodes, then go do voiceover for it. And that would take two days. So Damn. I could crank out those episodes and then disappear. And you go. were Ryan Seacrest before Ryan Seacrest was oh, Ryan I was, Seacrest. I was hustling, dude. I went back and forth. I love the hustle. I love the work. I love the journey of it all. That, that was the, those are the best times. I mean, when I look back on my career, it's like, yeah, The Bachelor was great. Nothing beats sleeping on the floor of your office at a sportscaster <laughs> when you're 23 years old and you're scared to death and you don't know if you're going to make rent. Right. That's the stuff. But later in your 20s, it sounds like you were not only making rent, you were banking. This yeah, is probably like actually, 300K now if I'm doing the math yeah, right. So, so you're like late 20s, 300K, HGTV behind you, the resume of horse racing. You have Oklahoma City sportscasting. I mean, you have an agent that's in your corner now in LA. Tell me how the whole package well, finds you right. then comes uh, game show network and i did a show called mall masters the mall oh, of america I'm... in minneapolis and so we shot it was god it was horrifyingly cold god bless you people in minneapolis <laughs> listening right now i was there in november and i was there for like six weeks it was like it was the longest year of my life and but i, I did that and i met this this, this great production company stone stanley and they, mm -hmm. they taught me how to be a game show host which later would become an invaluable asset as I take over millionaire. millionaire. I had the vernacular and I understood how to do it because they, I was a host, but I didn't know how to be a game show. So he taught me the lingo, taught me the, you know, this leads to this, which means this. Give me you know? one trading secret from being a game show host that you learned then that us as consumers, viewers, and even participants would have no idea. It's just the game show hosting is more X's and O's. It's more the bachelor take, for example, or being a sportscaster, I can weave a tale. I can tell a story. And there are moments when you can do that as a game show host, but you got to pick your spots. It's more of traffic cop. Jason, if you get this next question right, you're going to move on to the next level. And that means a shot at $1 million. There's not room for anything else in there. If I, if I tell a story or if I get off track, I've lost that thread. And so you got to handle the business. Then I can say, Jason, what would that $1 million mean to you? What would you do with it? Yeah. But you, you got to know where to put that. Okay. And so it's just being, you know, you got to be the traffic cop and you got to know when to hit those moments, when to really punch it and, you know, when to, when to lay out, when to shut the F up, yeah. which is important as a host. Interesting. Those are things that we don't get to see behind the scenes, but it's interesting how that game show is what connects you to Millionaire. It's interesting that acting with Robert De Niro needing a reaction probably is what led you to be the best host with reaction to emotion right. yeah. during The Bachelor. All these stops led to you know, a massive, massive career change for you. So was it after the mall show well, that you got reached out to? I met these guys at Zoo Productions who went on to do Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Okay. Which obviously was massive. Huge. And they called me for a favor and they said, look, we have a show, you know, you're not going to host it, but we need someone who will come and do the pilot. Yeah. And, and we know you're a great host. You'll come in and knock this out of the park and you'll help us build a tape. They tried to sell that show to Warner Brothers Telepictures at the time, no which is the company that was producing The Bachelor. So I was already on the list of hosts for this Bachelor job. They then saw this tape and they said, hey, we're not going to buy this show you're pitching, but who's that host? Huh. And they said, oh, it's Chris Harrison. 
And they said, tell us about him. They go, well, you know, he's married. He's, I think he just had a baby or he's having a baby. And they were like, huh? Cause the bachelor was looking for the guy next door. Yeah. You know, a guy that was married. So yeah. he wouldn't seem like a creep hitting sure. on the ladies. Sure. And at the time, which is really rare now looking for an unknown, they were looking for an unknown name that would come in and just be, you know, the backstory. You're not the star of the show on the bachelor. And yeah. really, when you talk about things that really set me up for life, journalism, being a sportscaster, my, my mentor, Bill Teagans, who said early on, get over yourself. You're not the story. Yeah. And all the great jobs I've had, millionaire, Miss America, bachelor, I'm not the star, huh. which is fine with me. Get over yourself because people will know me if I do a great job. Yeah. And so I really relished that opportunity to just work, do a good job and be in the background and make the bachelor, the star, make the bachelorette, the star, make the contestant on millionaire, the star of the show. Yeah. And I always said, if I do a good job, you'll know who I am. Right. But that is what really, I was on the list and then just doing that favor again, I wasn't asking for money. They did not pay me to do that pilot. I could have. I could have been a jerk and said, oh, give me five grand. I'm a, you know, but I just did it. And that is what got me in front of and moved me up the list on The Bachelor. And then eventually they called me in and I had a meeting with them. Interesting. All these moves that you're making, whether it was the negotiation at 22,500 or it was doing that pilot at no cost, even when the value of your brand is at a significant level, all of them, you're not leading with any form of ego. You're just leading with like logic and heart, which I think is a really good takeaway for people back home that are trying to find that next step. But then they do find you. They do bring you in for a meeting. Are you auditioning against other people? Do you know if you Never have auditioned. job secure? You got the job right away. I did less to get that job than any job I've ever had. So <laughs> it was really, it really weird. Is the most I think, desirable I job. think they had done so much due diligence. due diligence. And I went in for a meeting with the then creator and had a horrible meeting. We hated each other. Horrible. Should have been a precursor for what came 20 years later, but <laughs> I wasn't that savvy. Yeah, I wasn't that savvy at the time, but we just, we were like oil and water. We we're, he's LA, California guy, sunglasses on board shorts, you know, and I'm, you know, suit tie, hair slicked over, probably had my polo cologne on, you know, just Midwestern guy ready for a job interview. Sure. And, you know, I was warned, get ready for a long conversation. The How really, long was it? Four minutes. Stop. We hated each other. And he's like, thanks. And I left. I, it was the worst meeting in the history of mankind. So you walk out thinking there's no way. They, there the was guy. no way. They offered the job to somebody else. They offered the job to somebody else whose name I won't mention. Okay. That's one name I've always kept secret. I will respect it, all until, your boundaries, until, Well, until he says it, I'll never say it. Okay. But is he still relevant? Oh, like wouldn't that his name? No, okay, no, got it. no. Understood. We I think he there. is still hosting though. I think he is still doing some stuff. Okay. But he was like, you know, and we bounced around doing, because there was a group of us that was auditioning for a lot of the same jobs at the time. Yeah. Like we would, we were all good hosts and we were all getting gigs and we were all kind of crushing at the same time. It was kind of fun. Guys I didn't know, we were all just kind of moving to LA. And then I, you know, they offered the job to this other guy. They were negotiating with him. They were full in. And all of a sudden I get a call. They want to meet with you again. I said, hmm. what, to make fun of me? Like yeah. do a hidden camera show? Yeah. Like, like <laughs> no thanks, I'm yeah. good. I said, and plus, aren't they negotiating with this guy? And they said, well, apparently not. I'm like, they wouldn't be calling you in for nothing. So they called me in and, and there was, look, revisionist history. Everybody claims to be the person that was Chris Harrison's fan and yeah. the, the, the guy or the woman that, that said, picture. no, man, like I'm the one that said, you're the guy. And you know, that was the genius. And I'm, you know, I stood up for you. So everybody claims to be that person. I don't know who it actually was, but somebody did stand up and say, no, 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 no. The guy I was going against, you know, I will say he was very hosty. Yeah. He was very over the top kind of game show. Okay, hosty. Okay. I was not, I was very kind of like I am, you know, as you see me on the show now, sure. I was very kind of laid back and just me. I've always hosted in that my own voice and my own way. And I think if you watch any of my shows, you're going to, that's who I am. Yeah. And so they wanted that more down home feel instead of a over the top host. And so I think they pivoted and I went home for Christmas and I just got this gig and we're going to start production in January or February. And I'm like, I'm not going to tell anybody because I don't even know if I really have a job. They just took it from this guy. Why wouldn't they take it from me? It's a good point. I'm like, I, I, until I see myself on camera on TV, I'm not going to say a word. 
And another friend of mine had kind of lost a similar job on a dating show where I got, we all got called back in to audition for his job. And so it just, it's a dirty business and it put the fear of God in me. And we all told him like, dude, I'm auditioning for your job today. And so it, you know, it, I was very reluctant to celebrate. Did you have to leave your, your former job to take this role on? No. So now I'm working at the horse racing network. Okay. I'm hosting designers challenge on HGTV and I'm the host of the bachelor on you ABC. You gotta be kidding me. Dude, I didn't grow up with any money. We had zero money. And so I, I talked to Joan Rivers and, and God bless her soul. I got to be kind of friends with her before she passed. And she had the same mentality of, take it all. Don't mm-hmm. ever quit a job. Don't ever turn down a job. It's like Jay Leno do yeah. the same thing. Jay Leno would work, walk off the tonight show set and go host standup gigs in Vegas, yeah. like just relentlessly working. And it's, yes, we loved our job, but we were just scared. Yeah. We were scared because we've all lived with no money. And so <laughs> yeah. now that we are making it, you know, it's fleeting. You figure it's going to go away. I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. And at the bachelor, you think, all right, this dude's making millions now. He's killing it. My first contract was for $12,500. And I was going to ask you for the first show you ever did with The Bachelor, what were you paid for the first show? Twelve five. Is that per episode? Per episode. Okay. And it was six one-hour episodes. That's it. Okay. So, so relevant to that's your not, other- I'll do the math for you. That's not even 100K. Well, that's what I'm thinking about compared to your other I'm making more money at a horse racing network. Double, yeah, (laughs) double the network, (laughs) and I'm making double that at HGTV. So you know, I can't quit. So you think about a dating show like that, you can't quit. The money's not what you think it's going to be. Although twelve thousand five hundred at that time per episode is pretty solid. But is there any type of, especially in the world of LA, every decision you make, they say, is needs to be thought through because it could ruin your reputation to do something. If you go on reality TV, it's very hard to be an actor. Things like that. If you take on a unscripted reality TV in dating? Was there any risk in that at this point or no? There was because, well, the creator of the show was only known at that point for um, who wants to marry a millionaire. Um, oh, it was right. this, this very uh, critically uh, pan show. It actually, the ratings were good, but turned out the guy wasn't a millionaire. Turned out he had some legal issues and there was no background checks back then. So it was on Fox. It was kind of salacious as Fox was then. And so I'm like, Hmm. Well, it is on ABC slash Disney. Okay. So, you know, there's going to be a modicum of, of respect and dignity in this love story. And I'm like, you know, will I be able to show my face at church next Sunday? I don't know. So I was a little scared, but the good news is I didn't really have a big enough name to worry about it at yeah. the time. Okay. I was, you know, home and garden wasn't going anywhere at the time. And the, the horse racing network didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were all kind of hustling and trying to do other stuff. So, you know, while I was worried about it, I, I didn't really have the gumption and the, the, the name to worry about it too much. Okay. Let's go back to 22 year old Chris negotiating $22,500 yeah. deal who accepts it immediately. They bring 12,500 you per episode. You know, it's significantly lower than you're getting paid. Do you think about negotiating that? Well, we did negotiate. And again, I wish I knew I'd have to go back in the old archives to figure out, you know, did they offer me eight to start or nine or something? And we got to 12, five and, you know, they wanted me to be non-union. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to give up my union membership. And so there were things that like, they were willing to pay me more if I would do that. And so a lot of things went in, there was a lot of negotiations going back and forth, but you know, to their credit, they had me over a barrel. I had never hosted a network show. I was a good host, mm-hmm. done some game shows and stuff like that, but I'd never been on a major network. Okay. So it was, they knew it was a big gig for me. This what? is a big breakthrough. So in that regard, I didn't have that much leverage. I would have my leverage later, but not then. And I knew that. And again, I didn't care, you know, sure. I would have loved to have made millions, but I just knew this was the next step. I just, I'm a big gut guy. Yeah. I believe in if, if it feels right, I'm going to do it. And I'm, and I don't have regret when I do things, I'm just going to do it. And it's not that I won't make mistakes and it's not that I'm always right, but I'd never look back and think, no, because I'm like, I trust the guy that made the decision at the time. It's not that I'm always right, but I never look back and think, no, I trust the guy that made the decision at that time. That is where we're leaving off part one with Chris Harrison. Part two is coming soon. And as you could tell already, we're starting to get in the weeds of the transition in Chris's career to Bachelor Nation. Without further ado, let's ring in the bell with the one and only 
the Curious Canadian. Ding, ding, ding. And we are closing in the bell to the Chris Harrison podcast. That was part one. You heard all about Chris's life story right up to the bachelor job, which we know changed his life. And I'm sorry, guys. I had to leave you on a cliffhanger because part two, part two is an episode you literally cannot afford to miss. But David, I know you're excited about this episode. I know you were pumped to have the one, the only Chris Harrison on. I know you wanted numbers. And especially in part one, you got numbers. So what are you thinking, brother? You could tell Chris Harrison is a fan of the pod, Would could you say? Because he was prepared to share some numbers for the people. So always good to get some numbers out of them. You know, Jay, on this recap, I definitely want to get into a little bit about your personal relationship with Chris, how you got to know him, what your experiences were with him. But for the people at home, for the people who listen, I got to rattle off some numbers here. I'm going to see if any jump out to you as I rattle them off. So here we go. I mean, we're talking his first job out of college, $500 a weekend. That's all he's making. And he's coaching two soccer teams. We're talking 22000 for his first sportscaster job that he was extremely underqualified for. We're talking the first time he ever left what he thought his dream job was going to be in the Dallas Cowboys broadcasting team to make six figures, six figures for our boy Harrison that brought him out to LA to be a racetrack announcer of all those things. We're going to talk about the first episodes that he did for The Bachelor, $12,500 per episode. Lots of numbers being thrown out there, five to $10,000 per episode for Holman Garden. Here's what my favorite stat was. He did 65 episodes per year, seven to eight episodes a day recording for that Designer Challenge Home and Garden episode. So a lot of numbers that he shared us. I mean, the guys had a ton of different jobs. What an incredible path to get to where he was today. So a lot of takeaways, but we're going to start with the numbers. Yeah, it was really cool to hear just all the stops, all the numbers, the way that how fast it moved, right? From 500 a weekend to 22,000 to then six figures to then he's working while on the Bachelor 12.5 per episode. but. You think about the speed at which he moved, it's pretty incredible. I also want to put it in perspective to people, if he has these three jobs and he's hustling all these different areas, and let's say he's making a few hundred thousand dollars, $300,000 in around 2000 was around 550000 ish today. So he's in his fucking mid-late 20s, wheeling and dealing. His fame is increasing. His wealth is increasing. He's then jumping on this show that takes over the entire international attention of all things. I mean, what a trajectory. And I think it's cool how he stepped into that he didn't come from much. You know, it's pretty interesting. And I also like some of the takeaways about how he decided and navigated his career and how money really wasn't a driving force, but ended up becoming a, a massive part of his story. And what an incredible storyteller he is to tell all those stories. And I I agree with you. The fact his upbringing played such a part into where he is today and his motivation and overall just his demeanor. Like he he clearly got to where he is today by just really leaning on himself and and who he is and not trying to fake it, especially when he got to LA where there's a lot of people trying to fake it. So I thought, you know, I'm very appreciative that he shared the numbers and I think sharing the numbers. Yeah, it's great for our podcast. How much does it add to the storytelling? Like, how much are you more like into the moves that he makes and get to where he was because he was able to share the numbers, adding to the stories of where he got to where he was? I think it was really cool. And I know contractually, Chris can only speak to so much. You're going to see in part two, me dance and and Bob around a lot of the moving parts there (laughs) because, you know, there are some things that he can't speak to. I'm sure everyone could read through the lines there. Yes. I didn't know what he would and what he wouldn't share. And I also wanted to be very respectful of the fact that this is an area he doesn't really tap into much. And I don't think he has before. So for him to share that stuff, I think was really interesting. And I want to give Chris a shout out for people that don't know. He is extremely intuitive and intelligent when it comes to overall business acumen. Chris is uh, an investor. he's, He's very intelligent with his real estate moves. He looks and invests in a lot of CPG companies, which are consumer packaged goods. There was a deal that I ended up getting out of, but he got into uh, goat energy and laundry sauce and uh, a bunch of others. Like Chris is very, very astute when it comes to the numbers behind his career and also the finances and investment he makes. Some things you probably don't know about Chris Harrison. 100%. Now, before we get into our biggest takeaway from the episode that we're going to apply or that we could relate to in our lives, I want to take a step back and say, and get into a little bit about your personal relationship with Chris. 
I truly didn't really maybe understand the levels of, of your guys' relationship. Do you consider him a friend or is this still a means of like a business friend with Chris? How would you describe your guys' relationship? I consider Chris a good friend. Okay. Honestly, like truly. So, so Chris and I, I'll never forget the first time he walked in, in the mansion, you know, he comes in, does the little, the knife thing and does the ding, ding, ding. And I was like, oh my God, that's fucking Chris Harrison. That's nuts. The first time you met Chris Harrison was the first like limo night yeah oh no no no. it was week two so we do the limo night right i didn't see him that night anywhere and then we were up to like five in the morning we get our rose we go back we come back for week two then we had that's when we move into the mansion and then he comes into like we're all sitting on the couch and he comes in to do the date and that's when it hit me i was like holy shit i'm on the bachelor man this is crazy that's chris harrison and i remember the first time he was getting conversation going He's like, all right, Colton, what did you think? And then he's like, and Jason, how did you feel about that? I was like, oh, shit. Chris Harrison knows my name. This is nuts. (laughs) And then I think it was like after the show, too, and in Thailand, when I got my heart broken, I got to meet Chris. I got to know he references this a little bit, got to know him a little bit better. And then just throughout the years, our relationship evolved and evolved and evolved. And always stay in touch, always talk football, always talk golf. When he participated in the Tiger Woods event, Caitlin and I went there to support him. And so just every step, we became closer and closer. We, had, we were in group chats, side chats. You know, there's a big producer from Buffalo. Him and I and Chris had our own chat. Like, we just talk a lot. We became good friends. And now he's a really good friend, someone I confide in, someone I check in with, someone that we do business and stuff here and there. But yeah, I think that summarizes the friendship. And Lauren, I, I absolutely love and adore Lauren. We also contact David. We podcasted in Chris's house. Chris opened his house up to me to podcast. I went on his show. If you guys haven't heard it, go check it out. Most dramatic podcast ever. But I stayed there that night. And they're just such, we all had, we had dinner together. And they're just such really, really, really good people. And I love them as a couple. And I love them as friends. I mean, obviously pretty rare for someone to be on the show as a contestant, not even as a lead, to end up forming that type of relationship with Chris, would you say? Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. And I think that's what, when I went on his podcast, one of the challenges he had, he's like, I've never really, first of all, never been this intertwined and this close to a couple. And if I have been, it's always the lead that was like my person. Right. And he's like, it's almost like even when he interviewed me, he's like, it's almost a little backwards that I have you here, but that's also a testament to our friendship. So to your question, I do think it's out of the norm. But it is what it is, you know? Here's a curious Canadian question. You mentioned the first time you met him was uh, in the mansion on, on the second day when you moved into the mansion. When he comes in, does he, like, stay and, like, chum it up with the boys and, like, get to know the contestants at all? Or is he in and out just like it shows on TV? Like, comes in, says his three sentences, like, and then walks out, and then you just never see him again. See, the best part about this question, David, is this is the challenge I had with the podcast. Because this podcast, I had... And you guys will see in part two, we get into everything from like the process of who he thought might have filled his job and mm. everything in between. There's a lot there, okay? But I could have spent five more hours talking to the guy, <laughs> asking him all the ins and outs of the Bachelor stuff, right? So that was one of my challenges. However, to answer your question, no, he is at a host level, an executive producer level. You know, I didn't find until later when we were down to like four, then he became more friendly. But until then, there was a direct separation between his job and the cast. But once we got to the final four, that's when you started to build a relationship. That's when you started talking to him and things like that. So yeah, does that answer the question? Oh yeah. No, it absolutely answers the question. Is his presence in the room, can you compare his presence compared to like anybody else in the business world or celebrity world or like, like that, oh my God, that's Chris Harrison moment? that you had on the show on night two. And, and I guess grocery store Joe just didn't meet Chris Harrison that season because he got kicked off on the first. Episode. I guess not. He had, he had to wait till paradise. So Chris, when you're in his presence, he's very confident. He doesn't even get close to arrogant, but extremely confident. But he has a very like humble, soft, down to earth side. So extremely approachable, extremely kind, but extremely confident, right? If, if that makes sense. He, he carries a big energy. He is so good at what he does. He knows he's one of the best to ever touch TV. 
but he's also very, very sweet and very, very kind. Would you would you rank him in like when we started the podcast in twenty twenty one? Where would you put have put him on like if we could get Chris Harrison on the show? Is he like a top five like sought after guests for you? Yeah, he is. I think so. And also after this conversation, we were you know again we were in his studio, we were in his house like with his setup. I didn't have my camera, so I'm working off a of phone camera lens. Okay, we're gonna have Chris back on. Yeah, I mean Chris, we have two parts here. Okay, you're gonna get a great part one and wait till part two. Holy smokes, you're gonna get a great part two. But there are so many more trading secret bachelor type questions. I don't want to know, David. I need to know. But I do get into those. You're going to hear a lot about how he handled different management levels, what his process was like, how he negotiated. You know, did he make over a million dollars at some point per year? I mean, we're going to get into it on part two, but you'll see after part two at some point. We're going to have to bring Chris back. But yeah, I would say he was a top five and one of my favorite guests. And, and, and here's the thing about interview. I fucking love interviewing. I love hosting a podcast. I love the angling and the maneuvering and all this. <laughs> He's such a professional. I didn't even like get a chance to host. He was the host. He just like, I didn't even get to ask questions because he's such a great storyteller. I'm like, all right, I don't even need to be here, honestly. Correct. I'll just pop in once in a while. He, he said, Jason, just moved aside. I'm Chris Harrison, and I'm the host and guest. And let me tell you about my story. And I'm going to yeah, ask Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. You're out. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a definitely a top five guest. I mean, he is he is the bachelor. I mean, I think he still is the the number one significant figure from the bachelor. And all their bachelor episodes on our podcast, they do the best. They do the best for ratings. They do the best for reviews, for engagement. So to have have the big guy on was great. I can't wait for part two, Jay. I really can't. I feel like I'm licking my chops because I want to know some of the things that you're referencing. But before we get to part two, let's close out part one here. And I want to hear from you, and, and I'll give mine too, your biggest takeaway from the episode, from part one, whether it's something that you want to take into your personal life or professional life or something that uh, you want to manifest or something that you admire about him? What's your biggest takeaway? Um, and I'd love to hear from people in the comments uh, on our reviews what your takeaway was from part one, Chris Harrison. David, one thing I got to tell you before I give you my big takeaway, I'm going to tease you. Yeah. We talk about where Chris was in part two. We really get into where he's going. So I want to tease you with that too. That's coming. You're going to get excited. Before I tell you my biggest takeaway, I got to remember to tell everybody, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. So just go to Apple or Spotify. You're listening right now. Please just hit the subscribe button. It's free to do so. You have no idea how much it helps our show. Our show is growing week by week, and that's because of you. Also, remember to give us five-star reviews on Apple. Let us know your biggest takeaway or a guest that you want on. David, I have a huge announcement for us. Oh, right here. Huge. Right now. Love. We have just hit five thousand reviews on apple podcast wow five thousand i'll tell you what this is a moment because i never expected we'd have chris harrison on the podcast i never expected in a million years we would have five thousand reviews and because of that we are going to give something away from the influencer closet something that is sent to me that i don't use it collects dust and it's going to be shipped to yoga janie love the dynamic duo jay and the curious canadian great episode with luann I'm not a Real Housewives fan, and I still love hearing their stories and numbers. Definitely do the Diana deep dive. Remember we talked about Princess Diana deep dive? Yes. Appreciate your openness and honesty always, Jason. Thank you, Yoga Janie. Just shoot me an email, tradingsecrets at jasontark.com. Send me your address, and we will send you something from the Influencer Closet. Guys, make sure to subscribe. Let's go to my biggest takeaway. My biggest takeaway from Chris Harrison. I loved his comment about desperation. Yes. I mean, there is a beautiful quote right there, right? And David, do you have the quote specifically? Yes. Tell me. The worst cologne is desperation. I didn't smell like desperation. The worst cologne is desperation. I didn't smell like desperation. And I think there is a happy medium of knowing what you want, asking for what you want, getting what you want, but making sure that you stay far from the world of desperation. And I think there's a lot to take away from Chris. But for me, that one really landed. How about you? 
So I've said this on the podcast before, and it resonated with me. It made me feel a little relatability with me and uh, the big guy, Chris Harrison, there. But I've said on this podcast, I live my life by three things. Do what you love, do it to the best of your ability, and treat people the right way. And if you do all those three things, like good things will come and opportunities will come. He said himself, he goes, chase your dream, follow your passion, pay attention to the doors that opened because money will come. The money will come, the money will come. And if this part one isn't a testament to that and his path and where he's been, then you know nothing will be. So it was awesome to hear that that was kind of his mantra and, and to see where it's gotten him. And I, I literally cannot wait for part two. The worst cologne is desperation. The money will come. Trust your path. Take your shots and everything in between. This was a side of Chris Harrison. I expect most people here haven't heard. These are stories from his career, the money he made, the challenges he overcame, the successes he had, and just a different side of Chris's story that you guys have yet to hear. Buckle up. Get ready to go. Because we know if we take his storyline, it gets wild. For the good, for the bad, for the lefts, the rights, everything in between. And you guys know that Chris is a good storyteller. So just imagine how well these stories are told. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Trading Secrets, one you can't afford to miss. Make sure you hit that subscribe button because you cannot afford to miss part two next week with Chris Harrison. Bringing that money.